This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is a collaboration between the School of Complex Adaptive Systems, the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, and the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Hello and welcome. Today is Friday, June 2nd, 2023. Sean, it has been a minute. It's been a semester, I think, like a whole entire semester since we've recorded. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is helpful. As I recall, our, this is going to be the third installment of a kind of multi-part conversation about Twitter, which back in the wintertime, it was very interesting to think about and prognosticate about all the potential changes and observe some of the early changes in the platform. And today it's nice to reflect on some of the changes that we've observed and then talk about what that means for misinformation. I'm not sure I'm going to use the word nice here, but yeah, there've been a lot of changes in the platform and in access to data, as well as uh, what that data now represents is something I think different than whenever we first talked about it last year. Yeah. So if we can go back in time a minute, uh, when uh, Musk acquired the platform and vowed all kinds of changes, I think our initial snap take was, let's reserve judgment until some things happen. Then some things happen. And I don't think we reserve judgment anymore. Uh, And I think our optimism uh, rapidly deteriorated uh, as the platform. I think it's not controversial, right? Has kind of changed its composition. Uh, We know that they changed their discovery algorithm. And we also know that, you know, that the, the kinds of conversations happening on Twitter or even championed by the lead of Twitter um, are starting to rhyme with uh, right-wing extremism and, and misinformation. But uh, all of that is to say that since episode two of this three-part meditation on Twitter, uh, things have, have changed quite a bit. Um, and we have seen uh, Twitter play some interesting roles um, in, in some kind of uh, political conflict uh, between two parties trying to pass legislation, but you know, most notably and most recently, uh, Twitter being used as a way to launch Ron DeSantis's political campaign. Well, and I think we should go back to our optimism, right? Our optimism was about continuing data access, and that's changed quite a bit. Um, and I appreciate your kind of tongue in cheek of DeSantis's campaign because Twitter kind of fell down during that announcement. Twitter crashed multiple times. This Twitter Spaces feature could not handle the load, and they had to kind of delay the announcement over this like few hours while Twitter kind of put its infrastructure back together again. Yeah, and that's kind of Twitter in a nutshell. I think over the last few months since we last checked in, and 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 that is, you know, politically like shifting to the right politically, right? Actually, being the platform for a for somebody like DeSantis to launch a political campaign and not nearly as technically functional. But I think that that kind of highlights two threads for today. W- one is what is the kind of culture and, uh, and, and, and kind of environment like in Twitter now. And that gets into some of these questions about what does Twitter represent? Who's on Twitter? What does Twitter mean? What does, what does this mean for some kind of explicit conversations about misinformation on Twitter? And then there's that, secondary thread, which is just about the back end, about the technical capabilities or affordances of the Twitter platform. Um, What does it mean to get data from Twitter anymore? How do you get data from Twitter anymore? What are our limitations? 
And as misinformation researchers, right, and we should just spell this out in, in big letters for people, that Twitter has been historically a great resource for people doing research on misinformation. But I think it's a so question what, now about, you know, will that continue to be the case? Yes. And I think if, and I think that depends upon the things that you just mentioned, right? The changes to the things that you just mentioned to access the representativeness of the platform, who's on the platform, and the comparison between what Twitter used to be versus what Twitter is today, that impacts our ability to understand different types of mis- and disinformation. In many ways, I don't know, maybe this is too controversial, in many ways it seems like Twitter has started to skew towards what Parler was at one moment in time. So it's a little more Parler than it used to be? Or is that? do you think that's unfair? I, I don't think it's unfair. Right? And I think let's let's start off with our first foot forward talking about the kind of culture and environment of Twitter and how it has changed and how, what have we witnessed over the last six months about transformations on Twitter. And I think, you know, your comparison to Parler is an interesting one. I think one, one parallel that I see is that the, the leader of the platform and the most highlighted account on the platform, and that's the, you know, the up until the new CEO actually takes his position as the CEO, uh, you know, Elon Musk, you know, espousing very conservative, or not necessarily conservative, but kind of uh, radical positions uh, really explicitly uh, and, and using the bully pulpit uh, of, of Twitter leadership as a way to amplify those messages. I mean, of course, he's a Ron DeSantis supporter and encouraged Ron DeSantis to run. And then that's the only presidential announcement that took place on Twitter spaces, right, with the CEO of Twitter participating in Ron DeSantis's, Ron DeSantis's announcement. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's never happened before. Yeah. And I think that's, and that, uh, you put it a better way than I did, but I think that shows the parallel, that is a parallel with Parler, right? Parler has baked into it a certain political affiliation that, you know, I know that uh, all kinds of big tech platforms, you know, got, got criticism about being, you know, inherently liberal or kind of overtly liberal you know, shilling for a specific political candidate and being the exclusive platform for a political candidate's activity, that starts to sound like parlor to me. Yes. And so let's compare that for one moment with kind of what Twitter used to be and also why Twitter was so pervasive in academic research writ large, not just research in the mis- and disinformation space, but in general, the research in social media space, Twitter has dominated that traditionally. So first, the reason why Twitter dominated that space, as we've said in the past, is because Twitter provided this pervasive free access to data for researchers. So researchers could piggyback on top of their developer API or these connections to the platform that you can write automated scripts to collect data to communicate with the platform. They provided access to tens of millions of tweets per day, and that was all free. And this was one of the only platforms that allowed researchers this sort of unrestricted access uh, to study many phenomena. Like you couldn't study like a full election or the World Cup. That volume was too high, but you could study most events that were happening because the amount of data that you could get from the APIs was pretty high. But also, Twitter didn't necessarily represent all of the population worldwide, but in the United States, especially Twitter represented a space of many media influencers, journalists, high profile politicians, 
famous actors, other folks that had a high kind of centrality or influence in our media and in our society. And so that was a great place for us to study that. And also when those folks peddled mis and disinformation, we could watch that spread throughout society, spread in the media, other kinds of things. So that's what Twitter represented in the past. Um, how is that different than what Twitter represents today, do you think? Well, I mean, I think you can't put too fine a point on Twitter as a resource for people who do communications research, social and behavioral research, um, just just on the research side. The idea that Twitter could be some kind of broadly representative sample of, and, you know, I, I think, you know, it, baked into your comments is this idea that, you know, some people treat it as like almost like a zeitgeist, which it's not, you know, but but some people treat it as a community of that's kind of constrained to a certain set of individuals, but it can still tell us something about what's going on out there. And it gives a certain kind of resolution that other data sets don't have. And I think it's important, you know, for people who don't do social media research regularly to understand that point that you made about Twitter being the most easy to access. Facebook is much harder to get data from. That's not to say that there isn't tons of data in Facebook, right? Everybody knows there's tons of data in Facebook, but researchers just don't get access to it. Um, and likewise goes for some of these other platforms, you know, that we could go down the list that you just don't have the same ability to get in there and, and get data like you can with Twitter. And I think that's important because it, access to Twitter has changed the landscape of social science research such that now we're, you know, in the, in the, in recent years, there's papers coming out that are like, Hey, I think that we're paying too close attention to like Twitter has way too much representative value for the way that we conceive of the world because the data is easy or the data is more accessible than others. And we just need to check ourselves as researchers to make sure that we're not, you know, just ascribing too much representative value to Twitter just because the data is there. And I think it's always complex to try to take something like a social media platform and try to ask these hard questions about what does it actually represent to us about a culture or a society or a political movement or any of those kinds of things. Like, I think those are some of the hardest questions you can ask of a, of a found data set, like, like a Twitter data set, just to, you know, kind of get in the weeds for just a split second. But, you know, asking what Twitter is now and, and how it's changing. Um, I think, you know, what, one of the, one way that we can think about how a platform changes is not what's being said, but what people are using it for. And I feel like, you know, in, in watching what, what changes are going on with Twitter right now, one thing that we're seeing is a whole lot more signaling that people are kind of in line with, with Elon Musk, right? That this is in some ways, there's a significant chunk of Twitter that looks more like a cult of personality that is uniting around a kind of uh, single, single figure, which is very different from Twitter before, which felt a little bit more distributed in terms of its adorations and attentions. Yes. And we can, that's not to say that there still aren't communities, there still aren't breaking news, political discussions, there aren't other sub communities that are still active. Many of those communities have also branched out to other platforms. They were there before, but now they've moved some of those conversations or the intensity of conversations have switched to other platforms. So that's a change. And also another enormous change is the blue check mark. The blue check mark in Twitter used to be reserved for profiles to 
authenticate someone as a personality, as an organization. Like this is the official account of a news organization. This is the official account of a famous person or a prestigious researcher. And that prevented a lot of folks from masquerading as someone else. And that's disappeared. Now for $8 a month, you can get your own blue check mark. And that has kind of scrambled my brain whenever I'm using Twitter because I see the check mark and I initially am like, hey, you know, that person is the prestigious, you know, this is the this is the famous person that's saying so and so. And then I look at the account and I'm like, nope, they just, you know, they just bought the check mark. But then we've also seen the labeling of organizations when when Musk has gotten involved in that intimately, like NPR no longer uses Twitter as a result of that. Other organizations no longer use Twitter. And that's not to say NPR is the bellwether of everything. It's just that as a prestigious or influential news organization in the United States, right? It saying you've removed our labeling because Musk labeled NPR as government funded media, which it's not, it's way more complicated than that. And then NPR said, Oh, peace out. And then, you know, they've got like 60 plus Twitter accounts for all of their shows, other kinds of things. And NPR has abandoned all of those and Musk kind of rolled it back a tiny, tiny bit, but that was a big political move on his part that I think backfired. Um, but then we're going to, you know, what does a platform represent today? So one is data access. So the there were two APIs that you could have access to for free, uh, one being the 1.1 API. And those APIs, you would get data in real time. A lot of applications use that. There were alternative Twitter clients. That's all gone now. That has been shut off. That access is, is gone. So researchers can't use that. There's an academic API that gave different access to data. And that API kind of still works, and it's unclear if that's just going to disappear because Twitter has said it's going away. It's not going away. Some people have seen their access go away. Some people have seen their access come back. Some people still have access. Like It's kind of unevenly distributed, and we don't know what the plan is. The other big change, to get into the research weeds for a moment, for data access is that Twitter... The terms of service and Twitter socialize researchers in that the way that we share data is we don't actually share tweets themselves with other researchers. We share the IDs of tweets. Each tweet has this unique uh, numerical ID. So if you ever go to a, an individual tweet, you'll see twitter.com slash status slash this long number. That long number is the unique ID of that tweet. And so Twitter said what you do is share these IDs. And then we have an API that you can use to say, here's a list of IDs, give me those tweets. And the reason why is then if someone deleted a tweet or an account was removed, those tweets would then come back as not existing. And that's a way to kind of protect what users are deleting. That's a whole nother conversation about research and whether uh, taking a data set and we call it rehydration, that process of going from IDs to grabbing tweets, whether that data represents what it was in the past, that's another episode. But the point is, we actually archive these tweet IDs with our libraries and other memory institutions. And Twitter shut off the API that we would use to go from ID to tweet or this rehydration process. So now we've archived data sets with pointers to nothing. So those data sets are gone and can't be rehydrated. And so we can't get access to these historical data sets unless researchers then give their original data sets to these memory institutions. And memory institutions are highly risk adverse and don't want to be sued. So most of them won't take that. So that means we've lost all these historical Twitter data sets that we have. So we can't go back. The API has changed. It's unclear whether we'll still have API access going forward. 
And so Twitter will now become, will, will no longer be the central focus of collecting data unless you have tens of thousands of dollars a month to pay Twitter for that data, which is a huge change. Yeah, this is a disaster. I think in for for anyone using Twitter as a way to observe or create or archive a public record, for anyone trying to use Twitter as a way to understand culture and society, these changes are cataclysmic. I think something you mentioned at the at the top of your comments though was also the blue checkmark system. And I think that that's a different kind of problem in that it eliminates a really straightforward trust mechanism that Twitter had produced in the first place, right? So the, the questions that we had posed at the very beginning of this, of this particular podcast was, what does this mean for misinformation? And I think what you have talked about is, is important for misinformation in a couple ways, right? If, if we eliminate our ability to kind of keep records of what people say, then that is very difficult or that makes it more difficult to to suss out claims that could be misinformative right if if all data becomes much more ephemeral then it becomes easier to to mislead you know no someone can talk about their record or they can do, you know so someone had actually archived and this happens all the time right we archive the the twitter accounts of public figures who might lie or spread misinformation and if some of those data sets are collateral in these changes, then that's just a simple example of about how we might lose some of that capability that's very important for misinformation studies and misinformation mitigation. Likewise with the blue check mark. Uh, it, it was a way to have a trusted source, and we just don't have that right now. And I think before, you know, we 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 kind of talk about some some other changes going forward with the platform, you know, the another change or I should say, before we kind of continue talking about the data thread a little bit more, I, I, I just want to say another difference in in the way that uh, Twitter is organized now. And I, I don't mean to say that just because Twitter is political or more explicitly political, that that is automatically bad. I think that having Elon Musk as the kind of top intake for a lot of people who are using the platform you know, his posts are visible more than anybody else's. A lot of people are, have joined the platform uh, because of their enthusiasm for him. You know, Kate Starbird's work on these kinds of gateway figures who loop people into misinformation, that they themselves might not be the most misinformative people in the world, but they link out to the people who are the most misinformative in the world. And, you know, it used to be that these figures that that people like Starbird and others identify are part of a a, a a side of Twitter or a pantheon of different figures that kind of sit at the second level of the platform, right? They're not at the highest level of visibility, even though they're very visible. And I feel like you know if we're to imagine Twitter as a as a as a hierarchical structure, right now we've moved one of those gateway misinformers, Elon Musk, and put him at the very top of the platform. So he's kind of in the root directory now rather than just being, you know, uh, having to be surfaced by the algorithm just like everybody else. So to me, that is another profound change is that you have a misinformation gateway now at the highest level of access and reach in Elon Musk. Well, 
Well, yeah, and that's a change, right, from him being just sort of a player on the platform and an influencer, so to speak. Now, right, he's the, a gatekeeper, so he's, as you're saying, he's making changes to the platform and policy decisions on the platform. And a lot of those policy decisions are led not by a group of staff, researchers, other folks that focus on, you know, misdisinformation, on hate speech, on other things, right? Those teams have all been disbanded. I mean, for example, Twitter no longer participates in, there's a mis- and disinformation group within the EU that's been formed by EU policymakers in, in concert with major platform uh, owners like Google, Microsoft, Meta, Apple, right? Facebook has left that group, which is going to be interesting because that means that the EU is going to like regulate and find the heck out of Twitter for what they're doing. But Twitter has left that group saying that they don't want to participate in content moderation discussions that meet EU policy, which that's a big deal. That's just, it's amazing in a terrifying sense, right? Um, so that means the platform has changed, right? We know that the content moderation teams have been disbanded. So for example, we know that the pervasiveness of child pornography and human trafficking on the platform, researchers that look into this area have said like the incidents of this are spiking. And this is not just happening in the dark areas of Twitter. This is happening in public and spaces and the platform's not moderating this content. So those mechanisms that used to exist, right? And I understand that Musk has some very specific political stances on free speech, which I would argue are very naive, right? But you don't, it's not like, you know, the market of ideas, right? The free market of ideas just solves this problem. So if we let everyone talk, then the bad ideas and the dangerous hate speech and all that content just get drained out. That's not how any of this works. That's why we need content moderation because some horrible stuff gets circulated online and we have to be careful about that because that can cause harm to a whole bunch of folks. So throwing out all of these teams has then changed the mix of content because the mechanisms to catch some of the most horrific content that I think it's not controversial that this content is toxic and bad and shouldn't exist. Like we're not talking about, oh, is this mis- or disinformation? We're talking child pornography and human trafficking. And there, I think there's universal consensus for the most part that that content shouldn't circulate. So the teams and mechanisms to catch that content are gone. And so that content's circulating. So that alone changes the platform and is super worrying. And I think is a pretty naive stance for a platform that's so powerful and such a pervasive part of our communications environment, right? And it differs between countries, of course, but it's still a very influential and pervasive piece of our communications environment. And that's problematic, these changes that have been made on the back end in the name of free speech um, that are pretty naive. Yeah, it seems like the game has changed a little bit in terms of misinformation and bad content. You know, Musk is the author of the idea or of the saying, at least freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, which is to say that, you know, this assumes that your exposure on the platform matters. Otherwise, you're just a tree falling in the woods. I I agree. I I don't think that's actually an accurate portrayal of of how people, you know, discover content or if they're already following that person. It doesn't matter if if they don't get the reach of the Twitter algorithm, right, or if they're um, if their impact is minimized or shadow banned, right? Any of that kind of, any of those tools that content moderators have at their disposal. If you don't have the ability to get rid of material that is objectionable, then it doesn't matter how much your platform tries to limit the reach of somebody if they already have plenty of followers. That's going to get to you anyway. You're going to get updates on that person. And so 
you know, that by by just categorically refusing to do content moderation based on or refusing to do moderation based on content um, and trying to reduce or trying to do reduction rather than moderation. That is to say, reduce someone's network positionality or reduce the amount that their voice has amplified on the platform or, or their, reduce their visibility rather than just say, hey, this content is bad. That really changes the game for how people want to spread misinformation on Twitter. Um, like before, the idea was fly under the radar to make sure it didn't appear objectionable and link off somewhere else so that you could put all the misinformation in there. But now that you're not moderating content in the same way, or the, the institution of Twitter just doesn't have the same capacity to, to, to go through all that material, it strikes me that what it means to spread misinformation on Twitter is going to mutate and adapt for this upcoming election cycle. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to demonstrate some stuff that, you know, some stuff that's going to seem familiar, but other stuff I think it might be new and might surprise us. So that's going to change Twitter's position and role in the election. And of course, most of the social media platforms spin up teams to deal with election mis and disinformation and content moderation. They often see these as individual incidents rather than continuing to see this as one long mis and disinformation campaign. So they spin up the team and then break it down and then spin up the team, right? And so the question is, will Twitter do any of that? Um, and, you know, what does that look like? But also as researchers, as mis and disinformation researchers, this has been a problem in general of how do we compare the platform at different moments in time? But especially now, there's been this rift, right, between Twitter pre-Musk and Twitter post-Musk, that these are two different platforms now. And so comparing the two is even more difficult than it was from just the evolution of a platform. This now platform is turning into something different. And we're also bifurcating into other platforms. So some communities have moved into like Mastodon, but these none of these are replacements, right? We've got Blue Sky, we have Post, right? Um, and other platforms that folks are trying out in beta platforms. But again, we have the network effects of Twitter where folks have been there. Folks follow a whole number of folks. The network is enormous, not in the size of Facebook, but it's enormous and predominantly public. So this platform is still influential, but then saying, well, what happened in the, you know, previous election, right? Like 2020 versus 2024, how are we going to compare those two? Because Twitter is like a completely different beast and going to use completely different methods, if any, to regulate and uh, modulate its impact on the election. Yeah. And so I think other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think what this means is, you know, we kind of set this podcast up into two threads. One is how has the culture of Twitter changed? And we, we talked about that. And then how does the data and kind of platform contingencies of Twitter. How has that changed? And I feel like we've covered that as well. And now looking forward, I agree. Trying to compare 2023 Twitter with 2019 Twitter is is going to be pretty freighted. I feel like when it comes to misinformation, you know, doing misinformation research on Twitter, there is going to be that hurdle of how to get the data. But I think when you do, or if you do, and you're studying Twitter for misinformation, I, I feel like if the old way of studying misinformation was using tools like bot detectors or machine learning or um, uh, or kind of other other kinds of techniques for surfacing uh, bad actors or untrue content uh, or even trying to measure its influence, right? If we were using those kinds of tools uh, to do work at scale, 
that was going to help us understand misinformation. And that was like panning for gold. Uh, that not all of Twitter was misinformation, but you had to download gobs and gobs of information. And then you had to sort through until you found some of these interesting hubs for misinformation, or you found these interesting subgroups, or you found these interesting themes or these conversations going on, or you might find an account or two that looks like a gateway that's looping people into some of this other content that's off platform. So then when I say panning for gold, this is what I mean is that, you know, we've got some kind of apparatus that we're sifting through some stuff and that that's where we are, right? And we, we throw out a good chunk of it until we finally get to these nuggets that are, that are revealed by whatever tool set we're using. And it's not the best comparison, but bear with me here because I think what misinformation research will be like this election cycle will be like panning for rocks um, and that you put your screen in the water and like, you know, you've got 12 rocks and uh, well, that all that's useful, right? Is that there's going to be a lot more, a lot more explicit misinformation going on on the platform rather than just trying to find like a handful of these nuggets that are going to be very interesting. I think if you've got, uh, you know, already toxic disinformation coming from the top of the platform, you're not going to be panning for gold anymore. You're just going to be looking at it the whole time. Well, but also then I think we have to use more critical methods rather than kind of generic methods, you know, where we, we read the platform as text that we just shove through generic data science methods, like using, you know, NLP and topic modeling, or even just shoving these things through like a large language model. We have to then come at this with a lot more context, a lot more uh, expertise and a more critical eye to understand what's really happening and its impact on society, which we should have been doing anyway. But I think that's this more critical, quantitative, critical data science perspective becomes even more important to then contextualize what's happening and its influence. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, Twitter as its own little pocket dimension. We can't treat it that way all the time, you know, but for instance, we don't need a lot of misinformation circulating on Twitter for it to be part of a misinformation ecosystem if the, the kind of leading persona of Twitter is already spreading misinformation, you know, or if we're, if we're, if we're already kind of creating and uh, endorsing these, the, the, these bizarre values of self-defense and moral superiority and like, like nearly dystopian levels of libertarianism, right? There's a certain flavor of kind of, uh, you know, of, of kind of tech and it's, it's not just long-termism, right? But there's just, there's a particular set of I constellation of ideologies here um, where all you have to do is promote those personalities and you're already making people more susceptible to misinformation. Even if you can't, you know, fill a, a, a machine learning model with examples of, you know, actual explicit messaging going on on the platform, it doesn't matter. The prominence of the character itself is already creating conditions where people are, you know, more vulnerable to being misinformed. Well, and that gives permission for a different type of speech to appear on the platform in a way that we haven't had in the past. I mean, this is not to say, you know, Dorsey was anywhere near perfect in some of the things that he did, but there's really not a comparison between Dorsey and Musk, right? And so in some ways, this is what Trump did for white supremacy and um, 
anti-immigrant sentiment in nativism, that his speech around that then allowed folks to talk about that more freely in a way that we haven't had in the past, that made that hate speech be more acceptable. Yeah, And and this is what's happening on Twitter too, is that some of the things that uh, Elon Musk is saying then kind of opens the lid and saying, well, this type of speech is acceptable on this platform. Go for it, folks. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I'll, but I, I want to clarify what I mean about this kind of super libertarian approach that to, to knowing, right. That I think Musk is, 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 is dangerous as a result. Now, what I mean by this is I'm not, I'm not picking on libertarians, right. But I'm picking on this idea that everyone is so intellectually independent that they have to do their own research and you shouldn't trust other institutions and experts and that who you should trust is somebody who is like, you know, uh, financially successful. Right. And so that kind of atomization and that kind of like encouragement of people towards this in quote unquote intellectual independence, right. Actually breaks people down and makes them more susceptible because they don't trust anybody, but their own individual evaluation. And they lose a capability of like, assigning expertise or trust to somebody. And so it's not just taking away the blue check marks. It's also, you know, being this hero for a particular approach to knowledge and knowing that I think ends up disaggregating trust and makes spreading misinformation spreading misinformation a whole lot more convenient. Yes. Convenient and greases greases the wheels, right? Because like, oh well, that. that speech isn't going to be moderated, and it's not to say content moderation is this like magic thing that works well. It is not to say that Twitter did an awesome job before, but now they're doing going from a not awesome job to a nothing job. Yeah, and as you mentioned, right, that's an invitation, and it's also, like I said, I think the way that Twitter has played out in the last six months. I'm, Maybe it'll be different under a different CEO, right? But it has been almost a celebration of Elon Musk's personality, right? His his posting habits have been so desperate uh, to gain attention. Um, and, you know, like, for instance, like the, the really well-known tweet of posting a photo of his nightstand, which has, you know, Diet Coke and a handgun on it, right? It's a celebration of whatever persona he's trying to create, right? Um, and I feel like celebrating that persona makes us more susceptible to misinformation, Um I'll leave it there. Yeah, so this is a problem for researchers and this is a problem for society. And these are questions of how we study this. And we haven't answered the questions, I think, because I don't think there are good answers yet. This is something that we need to work through and iterate on and come together as a society and as researchers like critically. Um but we have to also honestly face some of the questions that this brings. And I think that's what we were trying to do today. Yeah, I think the short answer is it's going to get worse and it's going to be harder to study. Yes, sadly, the answer is yes. Uh, but the, I guess the good news is that you'll be able to find misinformation really easily. It's just going to be hard to study it systematically because of, you know, because of the data access issue. So nothing but good news from us today. And it sadly keeps us in business, right? Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> okay. We'll okay. See. I don't know what to do with we'll that, see. but okay. We'll see. Yikes. Uh, okay. No, I, I think I, I, all this to say is that I think what, one thing that we should acknowledge is that 
between 2016 and 2024, there has been a whole generation now of, of researchers and scholars who are interested in misinformation. And so I think it's important and, and, and why we're talking about the data contingencies of the platform is consequential for that community, right? There are a lot of people who kind of, you know, answered the bell um, to better understand some of these phenomena and to help us understand how misinformation spreads. And that entire generation was, you know, a lot of that is, is dependent on some of the data access that Twitter provides. And so it is to be seen what, you know, so my joke about keeping us in business is, is really just, you know, all right, well, what's the next phase of this going to look like as, as the landscape shifts, as data access shifts, as technologies change, it feels like this is the beginning of a different phase of misinformation research. Now that we've seen, you know, this current generation of misinformation research really kind of uh, not come to an end, but be punctuated by some of these other historical events. And this is not to say that, you know, we thought things were going to stay the same, but this is a sort of tectonic shift in the landscape of missing disinformation research with Twitter data and social media data. Oh, yeah. And this wasn't, this isn't just an evolution. This is a, you know, like a volcanic eruption. And are, are we the dinosaurs in this analogy? And we're, the ash is falling on us. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. I mean, we'll find out. We're just looking. Uh, isn't that star pretty? And it's really a meteor. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that we uh, we're like the alligators. Like we're going to keep evolving and we're going to make it. But okay. uh, you know, there'll be some things that don't make it. I guess I don't know. That got dark. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I mean, alligators live in Florida. That brings it full circle to Ron DeSantis. So we're ready to end today on that note, having just woven together these themes pretty masterfully. Um, thanks for joining us on this conversation, our third and last check-in on Twitter for at least six months. Be thoughtful and be well. <laughs>